Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. What in the world are we even here for? How do we know we've done a good job, and uh, when do we know that we've not done it well? We're going to cover those things today in a special edition of The Scent Life podcast. Thanks for being here. Keelan, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you, Scott? Well, the pollen's in the air. My voice sounds like I have been gargling salt water or razor blades. But other than that, I'm doing great. How about you? You know, I'm all right, too. Uh, Things are going well, though. The pollen, I'll tell you what, moving back into the area, this is the first I've had to experience this in a number of years. And man, it's something else. Welcome back to the East Coast, man. Hey, so today, man, we're going to have a great time. We have our friend, uh, Dr. J.D. Payne, who we're going to interview. And um, Keelan, one of the things we want to deal with today, it just has to do with the fact that how are we supposed to understand um, what is the mission of the church and what is our mission? How do we even get at that question? It's not a small question, and it's also not something that uh, isn't without problems, even in our conversations today with churches. Yeah, so I'm really excited about the way that we're going to gonna approach this one today. So for those of you who are familiar, uh, there's a fellow by the name of J.D. Payne. J.D.'s actually written a book called Apostolic Imagination that gets to these specific issues. And so we're going to get to hear from J.D. today in an interview that we're going to do with him about the topic. That's right. So we want to let you guys know that we're about to jump from a studio to a Zoom interview. And uh, so the sound may be a little bit different, but we're about to enter right now into an interview, a conversation with Dr. J.D. Payne, uh, who's professor of Christian ministry at Samford University. So we're here with uh, our friend J.D. Payne, and J.D. is uh, coming to us live from Birmingham, Alabama. Welcome, J.D. Brothers, it is uh, great to be with with you guys. Uh, man, I so much appreciate you all and your ministry, but uh, definitely your all's friendship uh, over the years. And so it's uh, it's it's truly a delight, a blessing, and honor to, to be with you today. Man, we're thankful as well. Now, J.D., for those of you who do not know, uh, J.D. is a uh, professor of... Um, Christian ministry at uh, Samford University. He's also the vice president for the Southeast region of the Evangelical Missiological Society. Uh, he has previously taught at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, so was on staff at uh, Church at Brook Hills, but more importantly, he's a prolific author. And um, if you want to know what that, you can go to J.D. Payne's um, Amazon author page and just be wowed with the number of words that he's put out and I'm, i'll tell you i was just impressed how many books have you have you published do you know uh 15 15 books yeah and we're working on number 16 right now so lord willing maybe we'll see another one sometime you're in the such future. a young guy man you must start doing this when you're like in middle school <laughs> His first manuscript he didn't crayon. <laughs> yeah, that, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I wrote all these books like before I graduated from high school. I'm just now rolling them out. <laughs> that's good. So, but today we do want to talk about your most recent publication, um, and uh, which you've entitled Apostolic Imagination. Um, and that book came out in uh, 2021. Is that right? 
No, it actually came out uh, at the beginning of, of this year, uh, 2022. So okay. I, fin- I finished it in 21, but with the, the publisher um, getting everything together, they, they did not uh, release it until February of this year. Okay, very yeah, good. Yeah, I thought so- it was going to be out last year, but it, it came out at the beginning of this year. I understand. We know how that we know how that works. Sometimes you just have to turn it loose and somebody else takes control of the launch. Oh, right? mercy. Yes, yes. That's so true. So when you what I want to do here is we're going to talk about the book because the book really comes. Uh, I mean, I really appreciate the book. It comes with a kind of a concern that you're were having that language related to missions was becoming less clear or maybe was just flat out unclear. Um, so when you, when you kind of introduce the, the topic in the book, you had a concern about language, what is mission? And so when you talk about language being unclear, what did you have in mind? What really drove you to write this book on apostolic imagination? Well, well, maybe I can take kind of the second part of that question first. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what drove me to write it is that, um, you know, 19 years in pastoral ministry, and I've, I've spent, um, you know, 20 some years, uh, you know, training uh, pastors and training missionaries. And, um, and I just really think that uh, among evangelicals, we really need a paradigm shift, uh, just a complete shift in the way we're doing things. It doesn't mean that everything we're doing is, is wrong or bad. It doesn't mean that everything has to be scrapped. It just means that I think that we have lost significant focus and so this book is is touching on a lot of areas that I think we need to to refocus our um, our attention and efforts on. And the book does talk about language, uh, and so I think that a great deal of of where some of the problems uh, come into play, not all of them, is just our use of of extra biblical terminology. Extra biblical terminology is not wrong. We we you know we use the word Trinity uh, and others, so it's not wrong. But if you take a, a concept like Trinity, you know, we have we have centuries of significant theological discussion and depth of biblical support and teaching uh, to to bolster, to support that concept, Trinity. Uh, however, the church, for the most part, did not become serious about mission theology until the 20th century. Mm. And when we begin to look at the language of what, what we use, so mission, missionaries, um, even the the you know the more recent uh, terminology of missional, uh, where does all that come from? Well, I mean it's ac- it's extra biblical terminology coming from from Latin words. Uh, they're they're New Testament and I think Old Testament um, um, uh, words that that we try to draw from, but for the most part, it started with the Jesuits in the 16th mm. century, and and because we never had that robust theological undergirding with that language, uh, mission, the language of mission has come to, to mean a variety of different things. And so we, it, we use the same terms in evangelical circles, but we operate from different, you know, definitions. So, um, you know, just, just, you know, quick thought on that. I mean, just imagine this scenario, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning, you know, a pastor will get up and will announce that the youth choir's mission trip mm. will take place next year as they go to Appalachia to sing in the worship services of another church, and the men on mission will be doing missions in Honduras this summer by installing a roof on a school, but today they're to pray for missionaries, planting mm. churches in the Middle East among an unreached people group. Mm. So same terms, different definitions, and so that's a big problem I think we need to think about. So what are what would be then some of the, I mean, you've got these different illustrations, which I mean, you can just see in my mind, we've probably been in that service, right, right. where those three things have happened. But 
as you as you scan the horizon in the evangelical world, and of course, as you serving with evangelical missiological society and all that, what are some of the implications that we have um, in our in in, in the, the 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 missionary movement? What are the implications of this confused language or the confused definition of these words? Well. You know, the, the book talks about the need for us to reimagine a variety of things, and, and these things are interconnected. They're highly, you know, connected. So to answer your question about kind of the implications, um, there, there are a lot of different implications. So, for example, uh, I think we need to reimagine uh, the issue of identity, mm. because if our language is confused and we don't know exactly what we're referring to and we're all, not all on the same page, uh, that's going to affect uh, what we call missionary identity. So what is a missionary supposed to do? Uh, who is a missionary? Is everyone a missionary? Um, that's going to affect issues related to prioritization. I mean, right now in, uh, in among evangelical circles, if you, if you begin to advocate that there, the church should have some kind of priority in the, in the ministry functions that she is to engage in throughout the world, um, in many cases, you're, you're a minority voice. Right. That's and right. so, you know, in the room of multiple tasks, multiple functions the church can engage in, in what we call missions that missionaries do, depending on how you understand those concepts, you can basically begin to say, well, sharing the gospel, doing evangelism is just as equivalent as something like a creation care. Mm. Um, you know, providing clean water for people is just as, you know, equivalent um, uh, should be on the same level of prioritization as uh, doing church planting. And so those things are good things. Those things are important. I think those sure. things are part of living out the kingdom ethic in, in being involved in God's mission in the world. But uh, we, we lose any sort of sense of priority. We lose sense of what uh, apostolic or what I call apostolic or what some would say missionary functions should be primarily uh, on the field. It, it, we lose focus about the issue of where, where do we engage in our work? If there's no sense of priority, uh, it affects our strategy, uh, and it affects the how the church, the evangelical church in the Western world, uh, thinks about uh, this thing that we're trying to understand as mission in our backyard. And then how do we partner with majority world believers throughout the world um, in, this, in this great commission task? So I would say all these concepts are tightly connected together, and if you pick one of those and we begin to lose focus from, from a biblical perspective— it begins to affect the others, and it practically uh, impacts what we do on the field. Yeah, I think that's an. It's interesting how interconnected those things are, and I, th I think one of the things that you could add to the idea is this loss of a sense of uniqueness for the church. A lot of organizations do a lot of good things, but there's something unique about the church's mission in the world, and it has to do with the proclamation of the gospel and that message that we'd give to to others. And uh, so, a loss of priorities there may may also be a loss of uniqueness. Uh, J.D., I'll tell you, I am pretty fascinated by the title of your book. Uh, I think it's a pretty creative title, Apostolic Imagination. Uh, I'd love for you to unpack for us what you mean by that term. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the only one who's been using that adjective for some time. I mean, there are a lot of others that are have been talking about um, apostolic and even using the phrase apostolic imagination. Alan Hurst and one of you know has done that for several years, mm -hmm. um, and so so I wouldn't say this is original with me. Uh, it, it is interesting. Years ago, probably 15, maybe more years ago, I, I thought, man, apostolic imagination that, that would be kind of a cool title for a book. Um, 
And I began to look around. It's like, is that out there? And, and Alan's never, he's never used it, but I think it's, uh, he's never used it as a title, if I'm not mistaken, but I think he's used it as a subtitle okay. in his book. But, um, but when I talk about the apostolic imagination, what I'm talking about is something that is related to to getting back to issues related to that that mentality that that mindset that really was um, was found in that uh, first century church. It was, I think the apostolic imagination was a, was a spirit transformed mindset that helped facilitate urgent and widespread gospel proclamation, disciple making, church planting, leadership development, and I think it established a mental framework related to their strategy in the world. In other words, what they were doing with the Great Commission task. And so I think we have lost that imagination over the centuries. I think we, and it's caused us to lose focus. And so to return back to that, that framework, that mindset that drove what they did, uh, I think is something we need to do today. And so, you know, I, I'm saying some things that are similar to what others are writing out there and have been writing, but I'm also saying some things that are different and kind of approaching things from a different angle as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So you talk about things, again, to your point earlier, we kind of lost some identity, lost the definition um, in your in your research and in your book. Where have where have these things started to go off the rail? In other words, uh, you, you lay out in the book that there's this apostolic vision that we find from the New Testament. We mm -hmm. see it moving through at some point things go off the rails. We've, we've lost it. Where did that happen? Is it in the academy? Is it in the church? Is it on the mission field? Combinations? What, what have you, what have you found in this? Yeah. I, I, from my, from my take on this, um, you know, what, what I have seen in just in my studies is that the call to go to the nations is something that among evangelicals, we have this, this strong pietistic zeal. You know, Jesus says, go do it. We go do it. You know, we don't, we don't question it. We don't, he just says, go, go do it. So we go do it. And and that's wonderful, and it's, and and we should. But but at the same time, I think we need to to couple that zeal with what what Proverbs, for example, Proverbs chapter nineteen verse two says: "Zeal without knowledge mm. is not a good thing." You know, he who makes haste with his feet misses the way. And so, I think what the church has often done throughout history is we've gone to the nations with that zeal, but we haven't undergirded what we're doing with with what we were talking about a moment ago a robust theological foundation mm. and so without that theological foundation we have the zeal and we begin to do great things good things and i think right things at times but sometimes over over time uh, you know over over the shifting of cultures and contexts and different people's passions and gifts that engage in the mission of god on the field uh, without those uh, without that foundation that, that theological underpinning we we still have the zeal to go, but but we don't have the defined lines mm. of exactly you know what we should be giving our priority and attention to and functioning and and actions. And so what happened, I think, in the 20th century was that theologians came along as they saw the growth of the majority world church and they said, well, we can't ignore this anymore. We need to we need to respond to this. And so they basically began to go back in the scriptures, uh, particularly starting with Karl Barth and. Carl Hartenstein and others, and they they basically started in the 1930s saying, "Hey, um, you know, God's mission is big and diverse," and they began to to provide a theological foundation. But the uh, the the those that have gone throughout the world and made great sacrifices uh, to for you know over history come back and say, "Well, no, wait a minute. What you're now telling us is that God's mission is really wide and diverse, and therefore the church should be engaged in wide and diverse stuff." And you're taking the language that we've been using 
for centuries. And, um, and you're basically saying it's not about just evangelism and seeing people come to faith and churches planted and indigenous leadership raised up. And they would come back and they would say, yeah, that's right. And so what you end up having, even to this day, is this conflict between what I would call the revisionists and the traditionalists. Mm -hmm. And so the traditionalists, I think, were, were right in the sense that there is a prioritization, but they were proof texting what they were doing. Mm. They didn't have the theological structure. And the theologians came along and they provided the theological structure, but because they were not also using biblical terminology, but they were taking the terminology of the Jesuits and adding their own definitions to it, um, they began to shift the understanding too. And so for me, uh, let's, let's move past the, the 16th century in our understanding, and let's go all the way back to the New Testament and begin to ask questions about who we are, what we're doing, and why we should be doing it. Yeah, that's great. When I when I read your book, I thought this is a book I wish I had written. It's something that I'd always <laughs> thought about, and, and I, yeah. I say that with all um, with all sincerity because it really is. You highlight an issue that is very real, very significant, both in the academy and just in practical language. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think the significance of it is, how, is it does impact so much of what we do when we, when we hear, and I'm sure you at Sanford have the same, same concerns and you probably had it at Southern when you're, when you're recruiting students who want to go to the mission field and we, we work with them and then language at certain, whether it's a, a, a somebody's podcast or a sermon or a book, suddenly things get off course. And my, you know, my experience over the years has been people tend to go where there's an applause and the whole world will applause everything that we do except evangelism. Right. Um, and, uh, but that's the one thing that we're the only group of people who've been challenged to do. And so we can't really go off the rails um, in this. Man, I so appreciate what you've done um, in this book. Now I want to pull, I want to pull a quote out. There was a quote that you had in the book um, that to me was just a fantastic quote. It's, it's a bold statement. And I just want to hear you unpack the idea. So you write in your in your first section, you say, and I'll, I'll quote, you said, the ethos of Christendom created an atmosphere in the West that resulted in a clouded imagination related to Christians and non-Christians. I thought this was a, a fantastic statement because it deals with how things have gotten out of hand. What did what do you mean when you make that type of statement about the ethos of Christendom and how has that really influence negatively this idea of the in in the west how we view christians and non-christians man did, did i write that you wrote that like a bunch of big words and that's why i read it real slow because maybe you know, that's my editor a, a guy from alabama used a bunch of big words i just wonder what what in the world does that all those big words mean you know keelan's from tennessee so we have to slow things down for him yeah I, I ain't got those words in my vocabulary um so so, so here, here's what, I, what I'm getting at on that, and that is um, um, over time, um, as, as the church grew and developed in, in the traditionally Western world, so to speak, and you know, Christendom really began to develop, uh, the, the, the influence of the church became far and wide. Uh, to use the metaphor of the steeple, uh, this is not an original concept with me, but uh, the, the the shadow of the steeple was was large across the land, so to speak. Um, and and the approach to engaging culture and context was with a very Christianized perspective. And with the established church structures in place, uh, it became primarily a pastoral approach to mm -hmm. understanding culture, context, 
engaging unbelievers. Now, what I'm about to say, keep in mind, you know, my calling, my upbringing is is pastor teacher. I mean, that's I'm not I'm not a missionary, um, so I don't fall into that category. I've trained church planning teams, I've worked with church planning teams, and served in new churches, but I see myself as that as that pastor. But here's what happened over time, and I think this is where we are today in the West as well, and that is we still approach even these things that we call mission activities through a set of pastoral lenses. So we think about engaging unbelievers like we would oftentimes engage Christians with, with, with established church structures in place, pastoral structures, pastoral methods in place. And the apostolic approach requires crossing cultural gaps, significant cultural gaps. So over time in, in Christendom, the shadow of the steeple has grown less and less. The church is becoming less and less influential among the unbelievers. And so the gap has widened farther between the Christian and the unchristian. And I would say that the, the wider the gap, the, the more we need to think about engaging people at an apostolic level. Now, that requires a paradigm shift, and that's what I'm talking about in this book, because it requires us to move out of a pastoral set of think, way of thinking in order to engage unbelievers. Um, but here's the challenge. How do, you, how do you do that in a place where there are significant church structures in place and unbelievers and believers are reside, residing by one another, but those traditional approaches just are not as effective as they used to be under the time when the steeple was very large in its shadow? That's great. Yeah, no, that's exceptional. Um, so I, I guess, so I want to say with Scott, you know, I really appreciate your contribution here. I think this is going to be a helpful book for the field. Uh, I'm real excited about uh, about seeing how this goes forth into the conversation for us. I, I, maybe as we land the plane here on the conversation, how do you, how, how do you hope it gets received? What are you, uh, uh, maybe a better question here is, what are your goals, your hopeful goals for, for what you see this accomplishing uh, moving forward, but part part of it, part of the goal is is to get the conversation started because it's a provocative book. It really is. Uh, I don't write it to be provocative just for the sake of provoking, but to 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 try to move us in a more excellent way, uh, if you will. I, I write the the conclusion. I write the conclusion to pastors. So I, I try to write from a pastor's heart to pastors, and basically say, pastors. Don't don't cease to be a pastor. Continue to be who you are in your calling, but recognizing that Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 ministry, you need to equip those apostolic teams, which means that you need to function as a pastor, but you need to learn how to think apostolically. Mm. And so I'm hoping one of my goals is to get the conversation started, both on the field, uh, in our in our agencies. And, and at the same time, to help pastors begin to, to think differently in a way that I think is going to help them in engaging the nations, not only on the other side of the world, but also in their backyard as well. That's great. Man. So, I mean, I so appreciate you being with us today. And those of you Man, thank in, you. Yeah, for those of you who are listening in, we really, we highly recommend that you find a copy of this book. You can get it at amazon.com or any other of your places you normally buy books, Apostolic Imagination uh, by J.D. Payne. In, in fact, if you would be one of the first 10 people to just hit us up on one of our social media platforms or something like that and let us know you would like a copy, but we're going to give a free copy of this book uh, to the first 10 people 
uh, who reach out to us. Number eleven, and after that, you have to buy your own. But we'll give you uh, we'll give you a free copy up. Wow, that's that's generous of you guys. Thank you all so much. Uh, you're for, welcome. You know, we're just... we're super wealthy around here. Keelan, <laughs> you know, Keelan comes and used to be in Texas. You know, Texas got oil money and stuff like that. So well, the Walk problem is, is if gas, any man. if anyone knows this episode is about me, you know, only probably about three people are going to listen. So you guys are going to have to sell those other books on eBay. That's what I'm hoping for. So uh, man, thank you so much for uh, for taking some time out of your schedule to talk with us about your book. Um, it's such a thrill to, uh, to to talk to you, to see you. And uh, man, thanks a ton for the work that you've done. Thank you, friends. I appreciate y'all. Appreciate it. Take care, JD. Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary exists to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Located in Wake Forest, North Carolina, we offer over 40 degrees, ranging from a Bachelor of Arts to a Doctor of Philosophy. The Master of Divinity is Southeastern's flagship degree for anyone seeking to be thoroughly equipped to serve their local church through a variety of ways. Since 1950, Southeastern has grown its student body to more than 5,000 students who seek to minister in the U.S. and around the world. We believe that theological education is more than just building knowledge. It's about becoming who God has called you to be. No matter how God is calling you to serve, Southeastern will come alongside you and help you to grow in your faith and go to reach the lost. If you're interested in learning more, check out sebts.edu to find out how God might be calling you to go next. Use the code THESENTLIFE, all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Hey, welcome back. This is for our segment out of the tower. Welcome Dr. George Robinson into our Scent Life studios. Uh, George, what you got today as we move back into the streets? Yeah, so last time I mentioned uh, the International Mission Board describes the core missionary task as entry, evangelism, disciple-making, gathering those believers together, leadership development, partnership, and exit. And so the last time we were together, I talked about an entry strategy. I, I said there are only two kinds of people uh, in the world. There are people you know and people you don't. Uh, you look for a circle of influence, or you're looking for a person of peace. Right. This time I want to talk to you about community exegesis as an entry strategy. That's a big word. Yeah, so <laughs> exegesis in seminary setting, we tend to think about exegeting the text of Scripture But it's really important for us, if we're going to live like missionaries, that we learn how to exegete the culture or the community around us. Okay. What what do you have in mind by there? We we kind of read the street signs and interpret what they mean. How do we exegete a community? It's funny that you say that because actually I have an exercise that I send my students out to do every semester in evangelism. They don't think about doing this, but I'm like, you know, you perhaps go to school in this community, but there are things that you've never seen. And I give them some tools uh, and and some categories of things to look for uh, with regards to mapping out the area. And I send each one of them to different districts around the town of Wake Forest, and they map those things out. And then they come back, and uh, the, the key question is, if you were going to plant a church from zero to one, if you were going to go from no believers to one believer, from no churches to one church in that area, where would you begin and why, and how would you 
uh, leverage those relationships, and they use this concept of community exegesis in order to do that. Sure. So when I first moved to South Asia years ago, we were uh, living in a Muslim community in a village in a very remote place, and it was only electricity a couple of hours a day, wow. but when they turned the electricity on, they also cranked up the uh, speakers for the mosque ah. to do the call to prayer. And I tell students, you know, every single morning I was awakened with the call to prayer. I never forgot that I was on the mission field. Mm-hmm. I never forgot why I was there because, quite frankly, life was hard. Um, different language, different smells, different uh, types of relational values, all of those things. So I never forgot that I was supposed to live like a missionary, that it was missions that Mm. took me there. But the danger is, is that I can wake up every morning on Main Street Mm. and I can forget that my identity is that of a missionary. All that's changed is my geography. Mm. So community exegesis um, some tools that I use with that are uh, like uh, community social media pages, right. those types of things, uh, getting on the uh, events calendar for your town where you begin to uh, learn the rhythms that exist within the community, okay. you begin to learn the key influencers, and then you begin to leverage and forge relationships uh, in order to live like a missionary where you're at. Right. So what's the goal of a community exegesis? And what are we, what kind of, what are we aiming at? You talked about entry, right. of figuring this thing out, uh, learn the rhythm, learn the locations, the influential people. What's the, kind of, what's the end goal here? What's my target? So the end goal ties back to our, uh, time, our segment together last time. Okay. So you're looking for a person of peace, uh, um, and community exegesis gives you the landscape uh, and and a, a way to approach and engage different segments of population within a particular community. And so just as you well know from serving overseas, um, you know, the gospel tends to travel more quickly through lines of existing relationship right. at levels of socioeconomic status right. and uh, similar language and everything. And so even here in the North Raleigh area, we've got segments of population that are kind of cordoned off. Hmm. And um, unless we establish something uh, within that population, we're never going to get the gospel to the edges of that population. That's a great point. And you don't have to be new in a community. Maybe you've never done this, so you can act like you're new, right? Start, exactly. Start this community exegesis as you pursue a missional lifestyle wherever God's placed you. Yeah, a great uh, great book that I'll refer you to mm-hmm. is a book called Tradecraft for the Church on Mission. Yep. And so those guys, uh, most of them served as IMB missionaries in Western Europe, and they basically give you the tools to go out and do community exegesis. That'd be great. Great. Thank you for being here with us. What a great, uh, great tool that we can understand the neighborhood, the community that we live. God can use us as missionaries no matter where we're placed. Absolutely. Thanks a ton.